Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. This is Dr. Bill Sinyard. We are on our trek through Romans, uh, digging up all of Paul's IEDs, his microaggressors. We're on number 12. People have asked, particularly people my age have asked, what in the world, that's not what they say, but what in the world is a microaggression? And I would say they're actually being microaggressive. Uh, I don't think, I think I just coined that phrase, but here we go. Uh, This is from that bastion of of education, Wikipedia. Microaggression is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative, prejudicial slights and insults towards any groups, particularly culturally marginalized groups. So there we go. Uh, so what group is Paul marginalizing and and dumping indignities on? Well, the religious, the legalists, the moralists, the the Pharisees, the uh, the, the the Christians who are still trying to earn God's favor in, in spite of what Jesus has already done. And he's got to shake them up. He's got to challenge them. He's got to get them a little bit emotional, get them out of their heads. And so I'm going to use the term microaggression. Uh, let's see how he does it in this podcast. We're in Romans 7 and following. And here's what Paul writes in, in the first two verses. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law. There you go. He's picking a fight. You can see that, right? That the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, a law... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. All right, so Paul has shifted from slaves and slavery and obedience, microaggressor, 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 to an unhealthy marriage, right? A uh, dissatisfied wife. The Greek word for bound is deo. It's a verb that it's almost always negative. It's, it, it describes confinement, being tied with uh, constraints. I mean, look, the normal context is against one's will or as a punishment. So you use chains, funeral wrappings, right, would be a deo. It's not good. So Paul is comparing the average relationship between Christians and the law of God, the Torah, with a dissatisfied woman who wants a divorce. Well, and maybe you can relate to that, but this Paul is, I'm telling you, he's using microaggressors. Um, and we're going to expand it, but um, what he's saying is this is the way your twisted, beat up, traumatized brain is wired, not because the Torah is an abusive husband, but it's the way we use the law and have interpreted the law and applied the law and manipulate the law in order to get our God cups filled in places other than Jesus. So the law says, we think in our brain, that to get the favor of God, to get the blessings of God, all one needs to do is to be obedient. But what the law says is you have to be perfectly obedient and have been all the time, 100% of the time. That's what the law says. Well, there's only been one success story, Jesus. And what does the law provide, promise for any failure? I mean, talk about an abusive husband. Even if you fail one little bit, which, by the way, you know, all of us fail a lot, the penalty's death. 
Romans 6, 23. We just read it. The wages of sin is death. So the idea that Paul is toying with, helping us to see, picking fights, uh, poking us in the eyes, is that with our brains wired the way they are, we're stuck with this application of the Torah formula, uh, a good Torah formula, but our application, the way we've been applying it to our lives, is enslaved us, right? So think of a good medicine that we use, and it and it works to medicate what's wrong with us, but we can become addictive to it and then require the medicine, and the medicine becomes God. Does that kind of make sense? And, and listen, the reason that a, the application of the Torah formula is just a bad one to pick is we can't pull it off. And ultimately, if you think you can pull it off and you expect that if you do better, then the, God's going to smile on you because of the Torah formula, oh my goodness, what are you thinking? No, applying it that way is abusive and will always lead to despair, lack of hope, checking out, depression, right? Um, so if your brain says, if I only did it better, then God would look down with favor or pity and bless me. No, that's not what the law says. The law says perfect, and, and by the way, the true for, Torah formula is good for us. If we apply it correctly, here's the point. Jesus did the Torah formula, right? Somebody won the game. And so he earned all of the blessings of God. If, if you want to see a list, uh, a contract list, look at Deuteronomy 28 and following. He earned all of the favor of God. I mean, technically, legally speaking, he earned all the love of God in the universe. Technically, legally speaking, humanly speaking. But then, mysteriously... And this is the good part of the Torah formula, uh, deep, deep down into the legal uh, rhetoric. What Jesus earned is now shoved into my bio. It's mine. I get all the love of God that Jesus earned, and I didn't do it. I didn't earn squat. So the Torah formula, rightly understood, is amazing good news. But my brain doesn't go that direction. My prefrontal cortex does, right? I can answer an essay question. But my, the rest of my brain, the relational part of my brain, uh, the addictive part of my brain is stuck and is bound, right, deo, constrained to the old way of applying the Torah. And honestly, we need a power to break its hold on our midbrain, our subconscious. Paul suggests that its power dies over us when the application of the formula dies over us, which requires death and a birth of a new way of Torah formula. Well, why are we, why is my brain so stuck on this? Uh, you know, my prefrontal cortex goes, yeah, Jesus died. Well, that, yeah, that makes sense. He earned it. All. Yeah. Well, that, why then do I need to earn? Yeah, that makes sense. So why is it, uh, why do I keep going back to the old way of applying the Torah? Maybe it makes sense if we speak of how, and this is uh, using Paul's metaphor, to speak of how abused spouses can psychologically bond to an abusive spouse, okay? Uh, trauma bonding, psychiatrists call it. It's the it's when powerful emotional attachments are formed, and it, it happens so naturally in abusive relationships. It doesn't make any sense, but they, they form. And these bonds are seen to develop in a range of situations that include abusive marriages or families, hostage situations, cults. And it, occur, it occurs where the abused or mistreated individual feels good about their abuser, feels positive regard and favor towards their abuser, feel like they need the abuser. 
or continually returns to the abuser despite the harm they do, so they won't run away. Does this make sense in, in Paul's metaphor? And it's often categorized by a sense of being able to live, being unable to live with the abuser and being unable to live without them. That is, it's pure victimization. Uh, you've heard Stockholm Syndrome. That would be a form of that. Paul is going to suggest that there is a power that can actually set our brains free from the way we have been abusively applying the Torah in our lives. It's the gospel. Romans 7, 3. So then if she, right, the abused spouse marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, the abusive husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, right? Not an abusive husband, but someone so much better, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God, that we might bear God fruit. All right, a little less confusing, I think, now that we've got the metaphors straightened out, at least I hope. And fortunately, Paul gives us two clarifying verses, uh, verse 5 and 6. See, our problem was not with the law. The law is good and reflects the DNA of God. The summation of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor. What's wrong with that? I mean, that's that's right-headed. The problem was not the law. It's how our brain and how our brain is wired to understand and and apply that law. Uh, Verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so we bore fruit for death. We bore death fruit. So back to that horizontal spectrum we spoke about in a previous podcast for saved Christians, 0 to 10. 0 is is going crazy with sin, and 10 is never, ever, ever sinning, being perfect, right? And, of course, nobody gets to 10 but Jesus. But we can move from a 2 to a 3 or to a 4 or a 5, and let's say we had a good week and we're a 6. And my brain will, because I'm on that formula, will expect God to bless me more than he did, Right? And on our scale, of course, but I should get more of his favor than somebody who's at a three or a four, even though both of us are Christians and Jesus has paid for both of our sins and purchased all of the love in the universe of God for both of us equally. Uh, and, and I called that the slave to sin spectrum, and it's slave to finding my significant security and belonging anywhere else other than God. And it's where we lived before we were saved. That's all we knew. It was ignorance. It was foolish, but that's what we did. And and look, if I'm still living that way, meaning if I'm still trying to work harder, do right things, be more spiritual, more quiet times, more worshiping, whatever it is, give more, tithe more to earn his favor and attention, I'm inherently denying what Jesus did for me on a cross and in, in his resurrection. So I continue to sin by denying the work of Jesus on my behalf. And matter of fact, it could be the worst of all sins because it's denying perfect love. And that's the nut of being this under the law, which is another technical phrase Paul uses to define this abusive spouse in my brain. So this is interesting. And we pick this up in the dance, right? The online journey is that critical voice in our head. That's the abusive spouse. Um, If you do the dance, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't done the dance, do the dance. I'm begging you. So anyway. That's what the the abusive spouse is saying. If you only got it right, if you only did better, more, 
then God would certainly favor you. But as of now, <laughs> come on, don't expect God to bless you. And what do you do? You live in isolation and failure and shame or denial, right? So how does this relate to my sinful nature in the Greek sarks? And here's verse five, literally, um, while we were in the flesh, right? Uh, meaning before Christ came. And now every now and then I, I live as if I was in the flesh. The sufferings of sin, which were activated in our bodies by the law, caused us to bear dead fruit. While, we're in, while we were in sin, the sufferings of sin, which were activated in our bodies by the law, caused us to bear dead fruit. Don't blame the law. Blame sarks. Blame our bodies. Blame that critical voice in our head that grabbed the law and started hammering us with it. The law is good. And it just is. It's a, it's a reflection of God's DNA. But the way we've used it, on ourselves and others is is abusive. All right, let me see if we can uh, shine some light on that. Some definitions to help us forge through this important verse landscape. In the flesh, that's Pauline speak for being on that horizontal slave to sin spectrum. Before I was saved and now functionally living out of that spectrum uh, as well. It's tragic and it's sad living like an orphan, but I do it every day. And, and, on that spectrum, if I want to earn the favor of God, if I feel like I'm lacking the favor of God or others, if I want to earn significant security and belonging because my cup is empty, if I want to gain love, I just need to gird my loins, man, and work hard and harder and harder and keep on pressing. Truthfully, you know, this is the Russian roulette of that horizontal spectrum. Sometimes it works. I pull off something successful. It comes with a dough pit. And my brain goes, ooh, that's pretty good. So I may fail six times out of seven, but that one time felt pretty good. And that's filed in my hippocampus under do this again. And unless it's replaced by a bigger and more powerful do this again, like my relationship experienced, uh, experiential love from God, I'm just going to keep tracking that Russian roulette. All right. So sin is best defined, as we've been saying, as looking for significant security and belonging anywhere other than God and in his arms, purchased by Jesus already on my behalf. All of it. It's all mine. Now, this significant security and belonging. I don't experience it, but that's part of my messed up brain. So the sufferings of sin, Paul talks about, is the void that I experience when I look for significant security belonging from other places, but I don't find it. There's regular disappointment, which comes with shame and a sense of failure and self-blame, the loss of hope. When I look for those things that only a relationship with God um, can give me, and, and instead I look for it in my career or appearance or relationships or sex or addiction or sexuality. But if I'm on this, this slave to sin horizontal spectrum, my brain will not let me release it and try something else. It's an abusive husband. I'm a slave to the trying harder to get significant security belonging. I'm an abused spouse trying hard to get God's attention and favor, but I will not uh, run from that spectrum, even though I don't find it. And so I bear dead fruit, no relational joy, uh, no spirit fruit. So if you take the list of spiritual fruit and do the opposite of it, that's what you see. Uh, it's dead religion. And yet my brain says, just keep trying harder. Come on, keep it up. Or my brain says, you've already screwed it up. God has already made up his mind about you, so you might as well stop. All right, verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. Ooh, this sounds good. 
so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. I like this. And not in the old way of the written code. Again, a euphemism for the way my brain has been using the Torah, right? See, now we have a choice. And now, meaning after our conversion, after the Holy Spirit has come to live in in the inner being. Now, because I'm a son of God, or you're a daughter of God, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the ongoing work of the Spirit in our inner being, wherever that is, letting me feel a little bit the height and width and length and depth of love of God towards me, right? That hit. And by the way, that's whether I stop sinning or not. And I'm not going to. I can experience a new release, a powerful release, a setting free from this this spectrum of death. We can. And there's an empowerment that comes to see a new way, to be able to look up and trust a new way, which Paul calls brilliantly the way of the Spirit. And clearly, this is not a a way of more effort from us. That's not the point. Or more perfection from us, right? More what would Jesus do, WWJD from us. It is not the legalist application of the written code. Like if only you did fill in the blank better more often, your spiritual life would just take off. No. We enter by faith, by the power of God that we access by the Spirit in my inner being, and we throw ourselves into the adoring arms of Jesus. We've received a new heart, and it's capable of actually being loved. It actually has the ability to be motivated to love others and God. And then when that's happening, we dance. We smile. And we do what's natural to us in this new motivation and this new relationship and embrace. We love. We love others. Um, the big problem I have with Paul's initial wife analogy in our, in our heads is that the wife is portrayed as being tired of her husband. It just isn't working for her. And she gets it and she wants out. But unfortunately, that doesn't describe most Christians. We're rarely tired of the law formula because something about our midbrain, it makes so much sense to us. It's abusive, but I'm thinking we believe we deserve it. It's the way our brains are wired in in our culture. And there's a twisted comfort with it, and meaning we're not jonesing to leave the abusive relationship. So frankly, Paul's analogy is a bit confusing to me, but I mean, I think I see what he's saying. But now, whether or not you agree with me, (laughs) Paul is saying something's changed. You have a new heart, a new powerful presence of the Spirit. And now you can look up, uh, and the Spirit can make you look up and see this better option, and you can run to it. The first option has been dead for 2,000 years. We've just grown used to the smell. But now we see that the relationship has been a bad one for us. It's been abusive. It is, it's ultimately a denial of what Jesus has purchased for us. We're loved by Jesus, but we're not experiencing that love. And there is no relational joy to speak of. So re- remember from the last couple of podcasts, uh, Paul in Romans 5 and 6 and now 7, imagine this option, right, as the box above this horizontal slave to sin spectrum. It's not even on it. And in the box is the writing, the Holy Spirit accessing power from God to make me feel adored by God now and freed from the slave to sin spectrum. That's the box we've been given, inherited. And and I call this, you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. This is the grace united with him, baptized into his death, living in new life, no longer slaves to sin, not under law, newness of life, box. Um, is, right? It's different than the horizontal spectrum. 
when we were saved, converted, spirit-filled, we were invited to be people of that box. Now, it takes the Spirit to, to get there and stay there any length of time, because like we've been saying, our brains are wired. There's no point in denying it. For the horizontal slaves-to-sin spectrum, it makes more sense to our midbrains. And it's our choice, but we need constant help and power from God. Well, how do we get it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's the simplicity we despise. We ask. We ask. So, Christian, get off the rat race. You're already in. Jesus purchased all of God's favor and love for you already. Just ask the Spirit to make your inner brain get it. Uh, go to the website, get this uh, simple, uncluttered gospel bookmark, download it, and say it twice a day just to preach the gospel to your midbrain. Right? Uh, now you can see that the spiritual marriage uh, wasn't good in the first place. The spectrum, not the law, but the way our brains used the law was dehumanizing. And 100% of the time, is going to eventually is going to lead to failure, shame, and despair. The only one who pulled it off was Jesus. He earned all the blessings that the Torah pro- formula promised for perfect obedience, and it's given to you, loophole of the law, uh, by faith. The horizontal spectrum really shouldn't jazz us anymore. It doesn't have any legit power over us other than addictive power from a dopamine cycle. There's an old John Newton, right, the slave owner? There's an old John Newton hymn, uh, the, the captain who ran a slave uh, ship, with a line that says, Justice smiles and asks no more. Well, the, the spectrum promises you more love, more attention. I mean, the way we've been applying the spectrum, more favor from God if you move to the right of the scale. But the gospel says, no, you already have it. Stop it. Does that make sense? Well, dwell on it. Um one of the reasons we designed the dance, www.the-dance.org, was for regular Christians like you and me to experience this more often. Like I said, our midbrain's messed up. So we designed a, a seven-part journey, seven-station journey, gospel presentation in all seven stations. And and in that, we, we just hammer your brain with the gospel that reminds you who you are in Christ, that you're no longer on the spectrum. We don't even use the spectrum analogy, but but you'll see how it's played through. We're actually witnessing to that critical voice in your brain. The dance is very biblical, gospel-driven. It's everything we've been talking about, um, very relevant, very contextualized. And look, there's almost no risk on your part, no judgment. It's shame-free. We're not going to shame you. It's a vital presentation of the gospel. That's good. It's under two hours. There's a fee, but it's a fraction of the counseling visit, and it's satisfaction guaranteed. Just go to www.the-dance.org and get started. Think of it as baby steps to begin to get off the addictive, dehumanizing, enslaving, abusive, horizontal sin spectrum that you no longer belong to and move you up to the place, the grace united with him, baptized in his death, living a new life, no longer slave to sin, not under law, newness in life box that Jesus purchased for you. All right? www.the-dance.org. Give it a shot. I think you'll be happy that you did. And then pass it on to other people that you know who you think might benefit from it. Well, next time we'll pick up on the microaggressors of microaggressors, Paul and his self-confession in Roman 7. I mean, this one's big time offensive. You'll see. Take heart, child of God. 
Often we believe our questions mean we don't have faith, but I believe Jesus loves our questions. Our questions are windows into heaven. I'm Caden Fabrizio, and on the Questions with Caden podcast, we ask and answer one question per episode as relevantly and biblically as possible. Questions about fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, and so much more. Don't worry, your questions, they're not going to scare Jesus. So ask away. Listen and subscribe now at lifeaudio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.